It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 411 for September 21st, 2014. This week, the Chromebook I bought about two months ago is even more useful now that I've read a book by Michael Miller. And I'll talk with Miller on this week's podcast. Firefox continues to delight and annoy. And in short circuits, Sony's profits sink even faster than expected. The final contenders for returning the U.S. to space are SpaceX and Boeing. And a company in Norway wants to be Instagram for children. About a month ago, I described how surprised I was by the Chromebook I'd purchased a month or so earlier, making sure I'd bought it from a store where I could return it within 15 days if it didn't work out. I still had it then, and I continue to find it even more useful than expected. Then I found a book that explains everything. Michael Miller is the author of My Google Chromebook, now out in second edition. With a Chromebook computer, nearly everything resides on a server. The modern term is in the cloud. But this reminds me a lot of the 1970s and early 1980s when people used what we called back then dumb terminals to connect to a mainframe computer or a mini computer. Then came the emphasis on desktop computers. Now we seem to be returning to a variant of what we had in the 1970s. And don't get me wrong, a Chromebook is by no means a dumb terminal. But there are some similarities. And of course a Chromebook isn't a good choice for somebody who needs a high-powered computer for photo or video editing. Michael, how would you describe the ideal user for a Chromebook? I compare Chromebooks more to tablets than I do to traditional personal computers. Because it's really, the Chromebooks, while they can be used for productivity, uh, they're really ideally suited to consumer use. So that might be browsing the web, you know, doing Facebook or Twitter, watching movies uh, online, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the same sort of stuff you'd use a tablet for, the Chromebook is ideal for. Plus, it gives you the option of doing productivity because you've got the keyboard. I mean, a Chromebook is like a, a tablet with a keyboard, <laughs> really, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, I mean, you're right. You don't want to do heavy-duty stuff on it. But these days, you do have, uh, you know, cloud-based applications. I mean, you've got Office Online. You've got Google Docs, uh, Google Apps. Uh, you know, so you can do your productivity online. You've got the keyboard to do that. But you can also do the stuff that most average consumers use their PCs for these days, and that is, you know, not productivity, but, you know, watching media and chatting online and that sort of thing. Chromebook is ideal for that. I did a program on this uh, oh, a month or so ago, and I got a surprising amount of feedback. I think a lot of people are kind of worried that uh, a Chromebook computer can't be used if there's no network connection because the applications in your data are all on Google servers. You can do some things locally without an internet connection yeah you can i mean it depends on the app uh some of google's apps uh you have offline modes now i mean you can use gmail offline you can use actually i think the whole google app suite offline uh you know if you set it up right most cloud-based apps though however are cloud-based apps it's just like again it's just like your tablet you really can't use your tablet much if you don't have a connection 
because there's not, you know, I mean, you've got some, you've got some apps installed on the tablet, but if you want to watch Netflix or go to Facebook or whatnot, I mean, you just can't. And it's the same thing with a Chromebook. So the assumption here is that you're going to be near a Wi-Fi network, you know, pretty much everywhere. And you know, three years ago, that might not have been a good assumption. Today, I think that's a fair assumption. It seems to be that that having a, a Gmail account is almost essential to the operation of a Chromebook. You can use it in guest mode, but really to get any any true use out of it, uh, you do have to have a Gmail account. So if someone is thinking about maybe buying a Chromebook but doesn't want to create a Gmail account, what would you suggest to that person? The Chromebook is uh, intricately tri- tied to the Google infrastructure. I mean, just like your iPad is tied to the Apple infrastructure, I mean, whether you like it or not, you're going to be on iTunes, you're going to be you know, on iCloud and that sort of thing. Well, with a Chromebook, you're going to be tied into Google. You know, So to use your Chromebook, you really do need a Google account. Now, that it doesn't mean you have to use Gmail. It doesn't mean you have to use all this stuff, but you do log in with a Google account. And just like with Windows 8 with Microsoft, you've got to have a Microsoft account. So, I mean, you're, you're t- kind of tied into the mothership, whichever operating system you choose these days. One of the things that strikes me as kind of interesting is if you know somebody with a Chromebook and you've got your account, you can use their Chromebook to log on, and you know, vice versa, if, if they're uh, with you and you have yours but they don't have theirs, they can log on with their account and there seems to be very little danger of information leakage, shall we call it. If someone came to my house and sat down at my computer, I, I probably wouldn't really want them to be logging on there, but with a Chromebook, that doesn't seem to be much of a danger. Yeah, it follows you across and, and your apps, your settings follow you across too. Chromebook, uh, the Chrome operating system is really based on the Chrome browser, and just as you can log on to your Chrome browser from different PCs and have the same bookmarks pop up, uh, it's the same thing with the Chrome operating system. So, you know, if I'm using your Chromebook, I log on with my account, I'm going to see my Chrome there. I mean, I'm going to see my bookmarks, my apps, and all, and all that, all my settings set up on your machine because the, the account is portable because the account's out there in the cloud. This is also a good thing in terms of security. You know, a lot of corporations like Chromebooks because there's really no data stored on the Chromebook, right? So if you lose your Chromebook, you leave it behind at airport security or somebody steals it or it's left in your hotel room or whatnot, you don't lose anything. Well, you lose the Chromebook, okay? You lose the hardware, but you don't lose anything else. All you have to do is log into your account back on another machine, and there's all your data, and there's all your apps. So, yeah, you know, if somebody steals your Chromebook, all they're getting is the hardware. They're not getting anything else with it. Speaking of security, the check the require password uh, to wake from sleep option, that is turned off by default uh, on Chromebooks. As you just said, they can be uh, left behind somewhere. They can very easily be stolen. If you choose not to change that setting from the default, it would seem to be that you're opening yourself up to some real security problems. Yeah, and, you know, which is really the case on any PC. So, you know, a good a good security uh the procedure is to, you know, get into the settings, which is easy to do in a Chromebook, and, you know, turn it on so that you're prompted for the, the password every time you log back in. Uh, you know, I think the reason they leave that off by default is because, you know, it, as a power-saving thing, uh, the, the Chromebook, you know, does shut down fairly quickly, what, within three or four minutes or something by default, uh, so that, you, you know, you're, you're waking it up a lot, <laughs> at least at the beginning, until you learn how to use it. Closing the cover on a Chromebook, of course, puts it to sleep. That's probably what most users do when they're finished using the Chromebook for a while. They just close it rather than actually powering it off. Uh, as a result, it does not boot. Boot time, of course, is very short. It's somewhere in the range of about 10 seconds. 
My understanding is that the only time the Chrome operating system updates itself uh, and does security patches and other things that, that might be released are at boot time. Yeah, you know, when, when you're done with it for the day, you know, I turn it off rather than just close the lid. I'd recommend the same thing on a normal PC also. Because even when it's in sleep mode, it's still using a tiny amount of energy, so it will drain your battery eventually. And when you buy a Chromebook, you're not buying a lot of storage with it. It's uh, not like uh, not like a computer that where you store all of the information on the machine, so the, the, the storage is limited. Most of the, the devices offer the ability to plug in an XD card or some sort of memory card. What kinds of documents can actually be stored on these on local devices such as that? Uh, I mean, you can store photographs, you can store music files, you can store videos. You, since you're working in the cloud, you're probably not going to need or want to store you know, your word processing files or spreadsheet files, although you could, you can download them from Google Drive. You know, that, that kind of defeats the purpose of the whole thing. But, you know, if you want to use your Chromebook on an airplane flight, for example, and you don't want to pay for the Wi-Fi or the plane doesn't have Wi-Fi, just load up some movies, load up some music, some e-books or whatever on a USB drive and you should be fine. Now here's the fun part, uh, extensions and apps. Let's start by discussing what, what are the differences between these What and what can they do? Uh, for the average person, you probably can't tell the difference between them. Uh, the, the line is a fuzzy, fuzzy one. And an app, more often than not, is a, a web-based app that uh, you often just have a link to to go up on the web and do it, where an extension really uh, buries into the operating system a little bit. You know, there, there are tons more apps than there are extensions. An extension could be something, uh, for example, to take uh, screenshots. Extensions are very, very little things that can, you know, extend the uh, the functionality of the operating system. Where an app is is a full-fledged app, is an application. But the applications generally are not stored on your Chromebook. They're generally you've got a link to them. Looks like they're stored on your Chromebook, but they're not. You have a link to them, and the app is typically a web-based app. So you've obviously been using uh, Chromebooks for a while. What are are some of your favorite uh, favorite apps? Uh, the ones that you've installed and uh, you find really useful or helpful or fun? Oh, that that's a good question. I um, you know I, I use the Google Docs suite, of course. Uh, you know, basically all the Google stuff, Google Drive, um, a, as apps on the Chromebook. I've got a calculator. I've got uh, the Weather Channel app, uh, the Google Play Music app, the YouTube uh, app on there. Oh, I, oh, and I forgot to mention a fair amount of games. My uh, my grandkids love uh, the Chromebook, and um, so I've got oh, at least a dozen games. You're a pretty big user, it sounds like, of the uh, the Google Office applications. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people use Microsoft Office, and Google claims that the, the cloud-based applications can open Microsoft documents. There's a little wiggle room when you say it can open the document. Google doesn't offer any real cautions, and I'm sure there are some that exist. Yeah, well, um, I've written books about both uh, the Google uh, App Suite and about Microsoft Office and about OpenOffice. Every suite, if it really wants to be functional, has to be somewhat compatible with Microsoft Office uh, file formats. So, yes, you can upload, open the Microsoft Office uh, documents within the the appropriate Google uh, application. However, not everything transfers over. Uh, In particular, you have a lot of issues with formatting uh, carrying over, that if you've got a really sophisticated formatting, let's say in a Word document with uh, a lot of multiple columns and a lot of, you know, almost a desktop publishing document, 
don't expect all that formatting to carry forward when you open it up in Google Docs. Uh, same thing with spreadsheets. I mean, most of the most of the functions will carry forward from Excel. Uh, Google Sheet, Google Sheets has you know essentially the same function set as Microsoft Excel. But if you do a lot of fancy formatting uh, of your spreadsheets, uh, they may not carry over when you open them up in the uh, in the Google Sheet. And if you really want to use Microsoft's web-based apps uh, or apps from uh, another competitor, Zoho, those will run on on a Chromebook in the browser just as they oh, would yeah. on any. Yeah, other and, and, and look, look, a, a Chromebook is like a giant web browser almost. So anything that you know that runs in a web browser uh, will run on uh, pretty much anything. Will run on a, on a Chromebook also. You just go to the web, you open it up, you use Zoho, you use uh, Microsoft Office Online or whatnot. Printing is a, a little bit complicated on a Chromebook. Uh, there are no direct printer connections uh, provided. You don't install drivers on a Chromebook, but they have made an option for uh, for being able to print. Basically, to print on a Chromebook, you use uh, Google Cloud Print. So you've got to uh, register for that, uh, which is pretty easy to do. And once you have registered for that, you can essentially send your document you know, from your Chromebook to any printer that's also registered with Google Cloud Print. So it could be a network printer, you know, a wireless printer that, that is registered with Google Cloud Print. A lot of the newer printers are coming uh, with that installed. Or it could just be a, computer, a printer hooked up to your home computer, to another computer, that you essentially print through that computer to the printer via Google Cloud Print. In terms of the operating system here, I think it was a brilliant stroke on a Google standpoint because, you know, unlike Microsoft, which has to support my word, what, tens of thousands of, of current and legacy printers in, in terms of drivers, uh, Google doesn't. <laughs> and that makes for a much simpler, uh, much faster operating. I mean, you know, when, 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 when you start up your Chromebook, as you mentioned before, it loads, I mean, extremely fast. It, it seems almost instantaneous, you know, compared to uh, a Windows PC. And that's because it's not loading up, you know, thousands of drivers. Security is something that Google brags about, and everything I've read about these machines suggests that they are among the most secure computers available uh, from from viruses and malware and things like that. Mm -hmm. Social engineering and phishing, of course, are just as dangerous <laughs> on a Chromebook as they are on any other system. But I'm wondering if there are any other computer default settings that you would suggest changing uh, to improve the security? Well, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're using passwords whenever you can use passwords. We mentioned before, passwords on Wake Up and that sort of thing. But there really isn't, isn't that much there on the Chromebook. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the security thing, and this is one of the things that's uh, been appealing to uh, corporate IT departments and, and to schools about Chromebooks. Honestly, the biggest market for the Chromebook is the education market. Uh, Google has made huge strides in you know the K to 12 schools and, and even into colleges, especially K to 12, because th there's nothing there to corrupt. You know, a kid can't accidentally install malware, spyware, viruses, or whatnot on a Chromebook. Where you know, if you give them a, a <laughs> you give them a PC to take home, you know, they come back the next day just loaded with infections. Uh, that's not going to happen on a Chromebook. And, and even if something does go bad, if the system gets corrupted, you just you know basically you know, there, it's a one button thing to reload the operating system on it because it's all cloud based. So the, the IT guys love Chromebooks for that regard. And if you could tell a prospective Chromebook buyer two or three or five, your choice on the number uh, of things about the device, what would those two or three or five or whatever number of things be? Well, you know, first of all, determine whether it's the right device for you. How do you use a computer? If you use a computer for, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, you know, that sort of thing, email, just browsing the web, 
a Chromebook is fine. Uh, if, however, you're a spreadsheet junkie, you know, even though you can use online spreadsheets, they're not ideal, and the keyboard isn't ideal, and, and you know, it's probably not for you. If you do, if you're doing anything heavy duty, whether it's heavy duty gaming, heavy duty photo editing, whatnot, a Chromebook is not for you. But for casual use, I think casual is probably the right word here. For casual use, a Chromebook's probably going to be pretty good for you. And certainly in terms of price point, it's cheaper than a lot of tablets out there if you're in the $200, $250 range, which a lot of them are these days. Uh, but you know, keep your expectations where they are. Don't expect this to be a high-powered you know, productivity machine. It is not. Uh, the other thing is, you know, make sure you've got a good internet connection. You know, if you're you know out in the woods in, in Idaho someplace and you don't have Wi-Fi, the Chromebook is not the best machine for you. Also, you know, if you do, if you're used to using a Windows or a Mac computer, you've got certain apps, certain uh, software applications that you like. Um, to use, then the Chromebook might not be for you either because you know it doesn't run traditional software. So you have to use you know cloud-based apps. So you know you get, get your expectations in line, and then you just start using it. I, I've often wondered whether the people who have gravitated to Chromebooks over the past couple of years, whether they've done so purely because of price, and, and let's face it, at $199, $249, that's an attractive price point, or whether they've also done it because it doesn't have all the Windows baggage with it. I mean, this is a clean operating experience. Again, if you're used to being in the Windows world and kind of all the glitches and, and whatnot that, that you put up with every day, you don't have that in the Chromebook world. It's just a, a very fast, clean, almost transparent experience when you start using it. Going forward into the new third generation, which we're in now, I don't know what's going to happen because they've actually the prices have started inching up. Um, a lot of the new Chromebooks are now in the $300, $350 range. As, and, and Microsoft and, and the hardware partners are bringing out a lot of lower-priced Windows PCs. I mean, you go to Best Buy right now, you can buy a Windows PC for $199. So I, I don't know what's going to happen this Christmas. It depends on how many people bought the Chromebooks just because of price and how many are buying them because of you know the, the other options on them. It would be interesting to see what happens this Christmas because the pricing has gotten a little topsy-turvy this year. That's Michael Miller, author of My Google Chromebook, now out in second edition. If you have a Chromebook, or even if you're just considering one, Miller's book will be an excellent investment. The book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, most other booksellers, and directly from the publisher, Q., in both paper and electronic formats. You'll find links to all of those sites on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If there's any consistency about my opinion of Firefox, it's this. There's a total lack of consistency. I've given up on Firefox more times than I'd like to admit, only to reinstate it as my primary browser after a few weeks. The browser's flexibility and the huge number of add-ons are what bring me back. The crashes and other performance issues are what drive me away. Maybe somehow there's a middle ground. Chrome is a good browser. Opera is a good browser. Maxthon is a good browser. These days, even Internet Explorer is a workable browser, if you can ignore Microsoft's heavy hand. Chrome, Opera, Maxthon all work well for me as secondary browsers. IE is fine when the site I want to view has been written to work only with IE. Repeatedly, though, I find that Firefox needs to be my primary browser.
Keeping Firefox up to date is important, just as it is with operating systems and other applications. Mozilla moved to an accelerated release schedule in 2011, and as a result, updates occur very frequently. Setting Firefox to update itself is a good idea, regardless of which release channel you're on. I've used the beta channel for the past several years because it has the latest features, and it seems no more crash-prone than what's on the standard channel. So pick the channel you prefer, and then select the auto-update option. Or if you prefer not to have updates installed automatically, at least remember to check for updates regularly by selecting About from the Help menu. The key to adjusting Firefox isn't found in the Options panel or within the Remarkable Add-ons panel. Instead, you need to visit the Configuration panel and you won't find that on any menu. To get there, type About colon config in the address line and press enter. You will be warned that this will void your warranty. In fact, it won't. And it won't because there is no warranty. This is Mozilla's clever way of warning you that changes here can have adverse effects on the browser. So just check, I'll be careful, and it'll let you proceed. The first thing you'll see is a dishearteningly long list of items with names like Accessibility Block Auto Refresh, Extensions Block List Enabled, and Zoom Min Percent. Some of the names will be reasonably clear, others won't. And some of the settings that you'll want to change aren't even there. That's right, as long as the list is, it's not everything. By way of example, let's take a look at Config Trim on Minimize. One of the primary complaints about Firefox concerns the amount of memory the program uses. By creating this Boolean variable, a Boolean variable is one with just two choices, yes or no, on or off, one or zero, and then turning it on, you'll cause Firefox to relinquish memory when it's minimized. Now that may seem like a good idea, but the flip side of making this change is that Firefox will take slightly longer to minimize and maximize. And in my case, the change was less than 60 megabytes of RAM. On a system with 32 gigabytes of RAM, that's pretty inconsequential. But it could be helpful on systems that have minimal amounts of RAM. After testing the option, I set it back to false. The Browser Tabs Close Buttons setting is supposed to control the appearance of the close buttons, those little X's that appear on each tab. Setting this to zero should display the close button on the active tab, that would be my preference. Or you can set it to 1, that's the default, and it shows an X on all open tabs. 2 should show no close buttons at all. And 3 is supposed to display a single close button at the end of the tab bar. The setting takes effect only after you've closed the browser and reopened it. And then, annoyingly, it didn't stick. All of the close buttons returned no matter what the setting was. Well, as it turns out, an update that was released during the week I was writing this article broke the feature. However, you can install the stylish add-on, then add a little bit of code to turn off all the icons. Sometimes the folks at Mozilla make something that really ought to be easy, a lot harder than you'd expect. When you hover the mouse cursor over tabs and links on the favorites toolbar, Firefox displays pop-up text that tells you what it'll do. Some people absolutely detest these. If you're one of them, and I tend not to like them myself, search for browser.chrome.toolbar underscore tips 
and set it to false. By default, Control-Tab cycles through all the tabs you have open in Firefox. If you're like me and you have a dozen or so tabs open, cycling through them to get to the one you want could take a while. If you set browser.controltab.previews to true, then Control-Tab will display previews of all the tabs, and you can then use the right or left arrow to navigate to the one you want, or click on it. In version 32 of Firefox, I noticed a problem with downloaded files. The download completed, but the download indicator always showed one second remaining, and Firefox attempted to resume the download when I reopened the browser every single time. My first attempt to fix the problem involved creating a little command file that deleted a file called downloads.json, but then I created an integer variable called browser.download.manager.quitbehavior and set it to 2. The default value is 0, which means that Firefox will try to resume downloads automatically. One would pause the download when you close the browser during a download, but doesn't attempt to restart it, and 2 cancels the download if the browser is closed, or in this case, if the browser is confused about whether the download actually completed. About the same time, Firefox released version 33 of the browser. I'm not sure whether the update or the new setting fixed the problem, but it went away. No matter how many precautions you take to avoid pop-ups, some will always slip through, and the slimiest operators create pop-ups that don't display a close button in the upper right corner. You can fight back by setting dom.disable-window-open-feature.close to true. Although the logic seems backwards, setting this variable to true forces pop-up windows to display a close button, even if the creator of the pop-up has tried to remove it. Firefox has a full screen mode. You press F11 to toggle it on and off. By default, full screen mode hides all tabs and the menu after about a second. To say this freaks some people out is probably a bit of an understatement. If you'd prefer to keep the tabs and the menu when you're in full screen mode, change browser.fullscreen.autohide from true to false. And there are hundreds of changes, perhaps thousands. If you really want to tinker with Firefox's innards, check out Karush Ghazi's Tweak Guides site. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide site. He keeps the Firefox section up to date, almost with daily updates, and also provides recommendations for tweaking operating systems and various other applications. short circuits. You know the old saying, if not for bad luck, you wouldn't have any luck at all? Well, that seems to be this case for Sony these days. The once high-flying Sony that for many years seemed unable to invent a product that didn't sell now seems to have trouble coming up with just about anything that interests anybody. As a result, the company will lose even more money this year than it had predicted, more than $2 billion. Sony expects a loss of 230 billion yen for the fiscal year. That is nearly six times the loss it had expected. 
Sony will, of course, not pay a dividend this year, and the company says it plans to drop several of its less expensive mobile phones and concentrate on the line's high-end devices. Sony will also make certain, undisclosed, strategic changes. A year ago, Sony's mobile phone division led the company in profitability. This year, it's a far different story. Facing competition from low-cost manufacturers in China, as well as from premium phone manufacturers such as Apple and Samsung, Sony is in an unsustainable position. Sony no longer manufactures computers or televisions. Both of those units were spun off as separate corporations. Sony Pictures and Sony Music remain, and the company makes a decent showing in digital cameras and video games. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration has picked SpaceX and Boeing to compete for the right to transport astronauts to and from the International Space Station. The first launch, scheduled for 2017, it will reduce the nation's reliance on the Russian space program that began following the end of the shuttle program. Russians have been providing transport services for NASA since 2011 at a cost of $71 million per ride. In the past two years, commercial flights have delivered supplies to the space station. After NASA hands over transportation efforts to private companies, the agency will begin looking at deeper space missions to Mars, possibly to some asteroids. The founder of SpaceX, Elon Musk, says he's pleased with the contract because the company wasn't founded just to deliver supplies to the space station. Boeing and SpaceX are essentially finalists in a program to carry astronauts to the space station and return them to Earth. Both SpaceX and Boeing plan to use an Atlas V rocket to carry their delivery capsules into space. Hestus, he's a Norwegian, says his six-year-old son wanted an Instagram account because his older sisters had them. But Hestus felt that his son was too young for such a service, and he couldn't find any service that seemed appropriate for someone as young as his son was. So he created Cuddle, spelled with a K. It's available for Android and Apple devices. Instagram's service agreement requires that all users say they are at least 13 years old. They don't have to prove it, they just have to say it. Cundle's approach is a bit different in that it requires parental approval when a child signs up and parents receive an email when their child adds a friend or posts a picture. To avoid bullying, Cuddle doesn't allow comments. Although Cuddle's target market is younger children, Hester says that some older people, including parents and some entire families, have signed up for the service. Cuddle is still monetized by advertising, but the company has plans to examine other revenue streams. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.